Hi, and welcome to the Vineyard Northwest podcast. At Vineyard Northwest, we aim to be a culture that welcomes heaven to earth by raising up world-changing kingdom leaders. We hope you enjoy this message from our senior pastor, Dan Cochran. All right. Um, Who knows what kind of day this is? It's a great day. This is a great day, okay? And God's going to do great things in me and through me today, and you too. So let's all say that together. God's going to do great things in me and through me today. And do you know what else is going to happen? This is going to be a day of supernatural victory and breakthrough, right? Supernatural victory and breakthrough. So let's say that together. This is going to be a day of supernatural victory and breakthrough. All right, good way to start. Uh, Father, we mean that. When we speak these words, uh, we believe it, and we look to you, Holy Spirit, uh, we look to you to be here in power today. Uh, Even as you are here already in power, just teach us, speak to our hearts, give us greater freedom, show us in greater depth what it means for us to look to you and to seek your face and, and what that means in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in a series called The Salt of the Earth. Uh, that's what Jesus said that we are as believers. We are the salt of the earth. And uh, two weeks ago, Wilson started this series talking about salt and how salt flavors uh, food, how salt adds something to the meal. I mean, how many of you have ever said, where's the salt? Pass the salt. More salt. Let's all say that together. More salt. More salt. Come on. We love salt because it draws out flavor and and it brings something different to the meal. It's different than than the steak or the french fries or whatever it might be. And Jesus says that's what our lives and that's what the life of the church is to be in this world. Something distinct and different that brings flavor to the world. Something that is so beautiful and powerful and desirable that the world itself is actually saying, where's the salt? Where's the salt? And I think in our day right now with all of the political turmoil, with, with the COVID-19 and everything that's been happening, a riots last summer, I, th- I think the world right now, whether they're consciously saying this or not, they need salt. The world's, the world's saying, where's the salt? Where's the salt? And the church is to be the salt. And I want to tell you, if all we do is enter into the fray, uh, you know what a fray is? A phrase is a street fight. You have a bunch, just a whole bunch of people fighting with each other. If all we do is jump into the fray and we're just knocking around just like everybody else, then we're not salt. The battle that we fight is different than the way the world would fight. We don't fight with, with human weapons. You see, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and we're seated with him in that place of authority. And the, the battle that we fight needs to reflect that. Because there's a battle in the heavenly places. There's, there's principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness that are, that are working always to destroy people's lives. And you and I need to have that in our frame of reference. To be salt 
It's a supernatural victory that we need, supernatural strength, supernatural workings of God in us and through us. And so we have looked at uh, why we need this. I, I, I believe there's a revival coming. I believe there's a day coming when there will be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people come to faith in Jesus. Uh, Bill Johnson said, there's a day coming when the anointing of the Holy Spirit's gonna be so heavy that all you'll have to do is say peanut butter and people are gonna say, how can I be saved? (laughs) Okay, I look forward to that day, I do. But you know what I think is also coming with that is resistance. If you remember the series we did in Acts last year, it was revival, thousands saved in resistance. More revival in resistance. And so we need to be salty so that we are ready, so that we are part of and we are ready for the revival that's coming, so that we can play our role there and be what God wants us to be, what he created us to be. And we need to be salty. We need to have our hearts and our lives aligned with God's purposes, with God's plan for who we are. We need to have that because we need to be strong to face resistance as well. And both of those things are coming. And this whole idea of salty, um, Wilson talked about, uh, kind of a sub-theme to this has been to redefine in our minds the concept of judgment. And Wilson started that by teaching us that judgment doesn't mean condemnation. Judgment is simply evaluating the facts or evaluating a situation. And when, when judgment comes for a Christian or for the church, it's always going to lead to healthy pruning. And as the church, we see in 1 Peter um, 4.17, 1 Peter 4.17 says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, this whole idea of judgment beginning with the house of God, what that means is God is, Luke last week uh, defined judgment as an assessment, assessing what is there and what's the good we want to see increase, the bad we want to see decrease, and the stuff that's neutral, uh, we want to evaluate very carefully to see if it's, if it's really neutral or if too much of it is actually interfering with the good. And so the assessment of the church is going to lead to greater health in the church body. It will lead to the church being more what God calls us to be if we respond to that judgment or that assessment the right way. And so for the household of God, judgment is always going to lead to a healthy pruning of our lives, pruning of our church bodies so that we're more of what God wants us to be. But the verse goes on to say, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, he's saying, we've obeyed the gospel, so we're already forgiven. Judgment's not going to lead to condemnation for us. But for the world, if judgment's happening in the world, it can only lead to condemnation. Because if people don't know Jesus and, and their lives are being assessed, there's only one conclusion that can come, and that's condemnation. And so there's a lot at stake here, folks. There's a lot at stake with us in our individual lives 
and in our corporate life, embracing this whole concept of God, welcoming God to judge us, welcoming God to assess us, to look at who we really are, and, and then to draw out what he wants to see increase, because that's what will make us salty in the world. And I believe this, that whether the world knows it or not, they have some broad stroke concepts of what the church ought to be. And when we don't, when we aren't that, when, you know, have you ever, how many parents are here who've had teenagers? Okay. Okay, for those of you that have had teenagers, did you ever get into an argument with your middle schooler? Stupid. That's just flat out stupid. Because what you're doing is you're moving from your place of authority to you're just moving right down there. Then we're just going at each other and arguing and bickering. When the world sees that, there's some sense in which the world, and if not the world, then the spiritual forces in the world recognize that we're giving up our authority. We're giving up the true impact God wants us to have, the true saltiness he wants us to display in, in this world. And so um, last week, Luke talked about the incredible significance of loving, loving others, especially our enemies. You know, it is so contrary to love your enemies, so contrary to the way of the world to love an enemy. By definition, an enemy it is supposed to be someone that is an enemy. I mean, they're against you and you're against them. But Jesus loved his enemies and he calls us to love our enemies. That's a, that's a countercultural thing, not just a thing, but when it comes from the heart, it is an expression of the true supernatural kingdom of God being lived out in this world. And so loving our enemies is just a, a, a huge part of us being salty. And, and so there's a lot at stake here, so much at stake, that uh, we've got to take this time in these weeks to really, to, to really allow God to assess us and to bring about the fruit and the freedom that he wants to bring about. Do you know in uh, 2 Chronicles 7, verses 12 through 14, it's a very common passage. I've heard it referred to so many times that, uh, you know, when someone brings it up, it's almost like I'm thinking, oh, okay, I can check out now because I know this. I did that recently listening to a sermon, but I didn't check out, and I'm so glad I didn't because the guy just had such great insights, and this passage is so powerful if you really look at what it's saying. But Second Chronicles uh, 7, 14, it's speaking to, God speaking to Solomon, who has just built the temple, and this beautiful, massive temple has just been completed. They've, they have dedicated it. God's presence has come and filled the temple to the point that the priests couldn't even stand up to serve because God's presence was so heavy and thick. But then Solomon prays, and Solomon prays and says, God, when your people are in need or when they're, uh, when they're facing difficulty, let this be a place they pray and, and, he, and you hear them. And so here's what God says back to Solomon. He says, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, where sacrifices will be made in the Old Testament, Old Covenant sense to atone for sin. And he said, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. And what God's saying there is, when I bring discipline into the life 
of the nation that I have chosen, my people, the nation of Israel. When I bring discipline into their lives, loving discipline, he says, if my people who are called by my name, if they do this, my people, my name, identity, my people, and they're called by my name. One aspect of being called by God's name is that what I do reflects on who God is, how people see God. You know, when David sinned with Bathsheba, one of the, one of the things that uh, came back to him was, you've given the enemies of God opportunity to blaspheme. And so my name, I am called by his name. And so because I'm called by his name, then not only does there's the spirit world, but the natural world also looks at me and says, well, are, do you look like him? Do you look like your father? That's what being salty is all about, and that's what this series is about. But he says, if they'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So it's first humble themselves. You know, humility is just me recognizing I don't know everything. It's me recognizing that there are not only there are other people out there smarter than me, but most certainly God in his word telling me how I'm supposed to live is better than anything I could ever come up with. And so humility puts my heart in a position to receive from God. And so it's humility first. And then the second thing is pray and seek God's face. Well, praying so often is just us saying, God, I have this need. God, meet this need. Pay this bill. Lord, my heart is sad. Make me happy. And, and on and on and on. I was just thinking earlier, when I was a kid, teenager, there were certain guys that you liked to see come to the party. Not because you were really happy to see them, but because they had money. And you knew they could go out and buy more beer or whatever it was that, that we needed. Okay, now a lot of us look at God like that. We're happy to have God come because God's got the cash. He's got the power. He knows how to solve the problems. And so that's, that's kind of like a level there. And, and I don't think God's offended when we come to him bringing our needs to him. He's not at all any more than I am if one of my kids come to me with a need. But it needs to go beyond that if we're going to be what he's calling us to be. And that needs to be, I'm gonna seek God's face. I'm not just gonna pray for need, I'm gonna seek God's face. So I'm gonna say, God, yes, I, want, I do want you to come and solve this problem in my life. But Lord, more than that, I want you. More than that, I wanna see your face. I wanna experience your life. I wanna see you. Because when we see him, then we are changed into his likeness. That's how we actually grow. And so seeking his face, more than, more than the help you bring, God, I want you. And that sets us up for repentance, to turn from our wicked ways. The whole thing's a process of repentance. It's changing our mind. It's reorienting our hearts from this direction to God. And, and it might be from this direction to God. However much of a reorientation we need, it, that's repentance. And, we, and, and we're, and we're going to be growing and reorienting our hearts all the time throughout our entire lifetimes. But um, it's reentering my heart, reorienting my heart, seeking his face. You know, when you see his face, that's inward. You know, when Moses went up on the mountain, 
uh, got the law from God. He came down, and because he had been in God's presence for so long, his face shone. His face just shined so much that it frightened everybody. And so Moses had to put a veil over his face so people couldn't see God's glory, which was just like residual glory shining off of Moses' face. Then the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians uses that, and he says, you know, just like that, just like that, once you come to Jesus, there's no need for a veil. Once you come to Jesus, there's no need for something to separate you from God's glory. Because you can, you can look into the face of God now. And when you do, that passage in 2 Corinthians 3 says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed into his likeness. You see, what happens is when you accept Christ, he gives you a new heart. And that new heart is, a, is, is, a tune, is in tune with God's face. It's in tune with God's face, with his presence, with his glory. So when I see his, his glory, that is ignited in my heart because my heart's new and, and I am impacted at a heart level. And do you know what happens then? Stuff just starts to fall off my life. Stuff that's useless because I've seen something greater now. I've seen something better. And my life begins to change because I see God and I experience his glory. And so uh, that's all behind this promise that when, when we hear God's voice, we humble ourselves, we seek his face, we repent. What does God do then? God does what we can't do. He heals the land. He heals the land. He does it. And that's why I've so often said that kingdom doesn't come through political change. Kingdom doesn't come through protests and through marches. And, and, I, and I'm not even saying people shouldn't protest or march or if you're a Christian, that's wrong. I'm not saying that. I am saying that realize in your mind, recognize that the kingdom doesn't come that way. And the best thing you bring to any situation is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's the power you bring. And, and so this great promise, uh, I, I wanted to share that with us because we need it. We need to know what God's, what, what God's capable of and what he calls us to. And so what are we to repent of? What's the, what are the things God's looking for when he assesses our lives or he assesses the life of the church? There's a passage in Ezekiel and I, I just recently heard Bill Johnson preach on this, and I'm, I'm just shocked that I never knew this passage was there, but I've read the whole Bible a number of times. I've read this so many times. Somehow I missed it. But it's in Ezekiel 16, and what God's doing is he's talking to Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, you're just like Sodom. In fact, he calls Sodom Jerusalem's sister. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Two city-states that even before Israel became a nation, God looked at them and said, there's so much wickedness here, I've got to destroy them. And God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they were gonna bring nothing but horrible influence into the world he had created. It's kind of like a family who has one kid out of six or seven who's a drug dealer, and that, that kid is bringing drugs and all sorts of dangerous stuff into the home and, and really corrupting the other kids. And, and that family with a broken heart says, you know, you can't live here anymore. That's, that's what God did when he, when he took Sodom and Gomorrah out. But he's telling Jerusalem, he says, you're just as bad, if not worse, than them. 
And then he says this. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister, and her daughters, meaning others, other cities, states that were influenced by Sodom, have not done as you and your daughters have done. In other words, you're worse than them. He goes on, he says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, pride. There's pride, there's no humility, but pride. Plenty of food, wealthy. It was a wealthy city, a wealthy culture. And carefree ease, they had developed their culture to the point that people could survive with a lot of leisure time. One translation actually says ample leisure time or lots of leisure time. But, what? But they practiced child sacrifice. But they practiced uh, all sorts of sexual abominations and temple prostitution and stuff like that. But they, but what? But this, she did not help the poor and needy. Not help the poor and needy. So they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them. But the root, root of this was no compassion for the poor. No compassion for those who were less well off. They closed their hearts to the poor. That's the thing that, that it wasn't sexual, it wasn't human trafficking, slavery. It wasn't sexual slavery or racism or worshiping false gods or unjust wars or anything like that. It was that they had failed in their prosperity, in all the leisure time they had, they had failed to care for the poor. You know, an abundance of wealth and all, all this extra leisure time without a purpose, without a direction, a God-given purpose, a God-given direction, it leads to all sorts of corruption and detestable things. Abominations, the verse says. That's just inevitable. An excess of wealth, all this extra time, but no purpose behind any of it, leads to all, all sorts of fallenness in a culture. So that it says they, they were haughty and they committed abominations before me. But the root of that was a failure to care for the poor. But doesn't this sound like today? I mean, I think I know this place. I think I understand what, what, what happened there. I think we've seen it. Some of us, you know, in our lifetimes have seen, seen a lot of this take place over the years. But the point is this. What God's looking for is loving our enemies. He's looking for compassion. He wants us to have compassionate hearts. Hearts of compassion for people, especially the poor. Did you know that compassion was Jesus' main motivator in ministry? Did you know that? His main motivation in ministry was compassion. It says it over and over again. I'm gonna read one passage to you. It's from Luke 7. It says this. It says, behold, a man who had died was being carried out of a city, city of, of Nain, and Jesus is approaching the city. And it says, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. This man had died, his mother's a widow, he, he is her only son, her only means of livelihood, her only support, her only friendship in the world. And he died. And it says, and when the Lord saw her, 
he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, the, the, the coffin, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And guess what? Comes back to life right there, right there. What was it that moved Jesus to do that? Did he say, oh boy, here's a great opportunity for show, to show people my power. Oh man, another good opportunity to show them how powerful God is. No, it wasn't that at all. It was moved with compassion for this woman. And do you know the word compassion in uh, the Greek text is uh, fr- from a word splankna, splankninzomai. And do you know what splankna is? It's your intestines. It's this whole section of your midsection. That's what the word splankna literally means. And so what this is talking about is compassion that you actually feel in your gut. It hits you. And it's not just, oh, isn't that sad? But it's like you feel it. It's, it's, a, it's something that is compelling. So Jesus, when he looked at this woman, he literally felt this thing in his gut, this compassion, this heart-rending love for this woman and desire to somehow help her. Compassion is not getting enmeshed emotionally. Don't, don't think that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, you know, like sometimes you'll see someone who's hurting and you're thinking, well, you can't personally be happy until they're happy. And so you try to tell them, well, it's not as bad as you think it is and, you know, and, and on and on and on. And, 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 we, and we kind of like, we attach our emotions to theirs. That's not what this was talking about. This is talking about Jesus owning his own, he, he had the emotion of compassion. And he had the ability to do something about it. And so he steps in and the first thing he says to the woman, he speaks to her and says, don't weep. I've got the answer. Now it's one thing to say don't weep when you don't have the answer, but it's another thing when you, got the, you, you have the answer and, and it's okay, don't weep. Gentle, loving, compassionate. And and, and he says to this young man, I arise, and the man comes back to his mother. So compassion, a Jesus-style compassion, is being moved, moved emotionally, physically moved to do something within what you can do to help another person that's in a, in a hard, difficult situation. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of shame or anything like that. I remember after my first trip to Africa, um, where, I mean, I had been exposed to severe poverty in Guatemala, but never quite to this degree or length of time, didn't quite the same thing. Um, and it just, I saw the poverty there. And uh, there were these two young nurses that either one of them could have married someone and been off to England or the United States and had a life like we have. But they both chose to stay there and to care for babies that had been born of mothers with AIDS and, and to minister to those mothers and babies. And that touched my heart alone, but seeing the poverty there was just overwhelming. And when I came back, I don't cry often, but I cried. There was a day just when I came back, sitting on the back porch and just processing the whole thing, I just wept. But you know, fortunately, a friend had told me this. He had said, don't 
reject God's blessings in your life just because everyone else doesn't have the same blessings. And so I was able to, I was able to, to find the balance in the whole thing with that. And, 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 and when we don't, it, th- this is not to be driven out of guilt or shame. It's not like Christian socialism or anything like that. Someday I'd love to talk about socialism and a biblical view of money. You know one of the biggest problems with socialism is? It views all the problems as monetary. If everybody just has the same amount of money, then the world would be wonderful. And, but you know what else? Materialism pretty much views money as the answer too. And, and so we'll talk about that another time. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about being moved in compassion for someone who is in a difficult, hurting, pain-filled situation and doing what you can do to help them. And especially directed towards the poor. But Jesus felt compassion and he healed a multitude of people. It says, he felt compassion and he fed 4,000 people because they had been with him for two days and hadn't eaten. He felt compassion for two blind men and healed them. He felt compassion and healed a leper. Not only healed the leper, touched the leper. He taught the multitudes. He raised this dead, dead young man at Nain for this widow. And you know, even on the night Jesus was betrayed, when Judas went out, do you know what they thought? They thought, oh, he's going out to feed the poor. Because that was so much a culture of what Jesus had created, a concern and a love for the poor. They, the other apostles, they thought, well, Judas has the money, and so Jesus told him to go out and give some money to feed the poor. That was so much a part of his life, and it, and it just needs to be for us as well. But you know, there are hindrances to compassion, and most all of them revolve around pride. Just a note, real quickly, a religious spirit will hinder compassion, because a religious spirit thinks everything needs to be earned. And a religious spirit also is gonna think, well, if I bless them with this, they're gonna think I approve of their lifestyle. A victim mindset leads to resentment towards others. Cynicism, you know, they're just gonna waste what they're given. And I'm talking about the poor, compassion for the poor. Arrogance, I earned what I have, they should do the same. Or you kind of view yourself as God's, God's uh, dispenser of justice. Fear, I won't have enough myself. I don't have enough to give away. Well, yeah, we all do. If you're trusting God for your provision, you do. You know, that, that's, a, that's a betrayal of the, of, of the deep-rooted belief system that uh, the poverty mindset that I don't have enough and I'll never have enough and God won't provide for me so I've got to keep everything I've got. Or a cold heart. I just really don't care about others. I got to tell you, if, that's, if anybody has a cold heart like that, you probably aren't saved, okay? I mean, I don't mean to be too harsh with that, but the truth of the matter is if you can't get in touch with some level of compassion deep in your heart, probably don't know Jesus because Jesus is compassionate and if he's in you then there's going to be you're going to be able to access that compassion that he puts in you because he's there bitterness I was hurt and no one helped me so many different things but Paul tells us this he says as those who have been chosen of God this is Colossians 3 as those who have been chosen of God holy and beloved 
Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You know, there are different analogies used. This analogy is like, okay, God has, God has redone your whole closet. He's given you a whole new outfit. Put it on. Different analogy would be, God already put this in you. He's already put the money in your bank account. It's already there. Just draw it out. He's made you a new creation. Get in touch with that. And, and, and ask him to release the compassion that, he's, that he has put in you by bringing you into a born-again relationship with the living God. And so here he uses the analogy, put it on. So just put compassion on. You've got it. It's right there. Just tap into it. It's already there. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything other than maybe break through some of these lies some of these things that can distract us from compassion. And I just want to say the fact that some people will take advantage, and some people will, the fact that some will take advantage is not an excuse for me to close my heart to people. Because when I close my heart, I'm not just closing my heart to that person that I think is trying to take advantage of me. I'm closing my heart to compassion. It's going to minimize my ability to show compassion to anyone. My own family, especially my family. I think it starts in the family in the home. It starts being a compassionate father, a compassionate mother. And your kids see that and they pick up on it and they receive the compassion. So they, 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 they learn how to walk in the compassion of Jesus that way. But if I have a cynical attitude, especially, and I say, well, they're just going to waste it. I mean, I've given money to people before, given food to people where they complain because we got them 2% milk instead of whole milk. I mean, the honest truth is if we had known they wanted whole milk, we would have gotten that for them because we want to honor them. You know, when you're showing compassion, you want to honor people. It's not like, well, you ought to be happy with whatever you get. But it's easy to feel that way. And, and if you've had an experience like that, you gave someone money or whatever, and then you find out later they spent it on drugs instead of food, that's not on you. Don't shut your heart down because of that, because when you shut your heart down, you shut that part of your heart off. And then there's not a whole lot of compassion to give to anybody. And so this, uh, this, this idea of compassion, put it on Put compassion on it. It starts in the home. It starts with us repenting from self-centeredness, self-justification, self-righteousness, and looking at the hearts of people, seeing the situations they're in, whether they brought it on themselves or not, is really, it might determine how you help them and how you relate to them, but it should not impact the level of compassion that you feel for them. You know, Jesus came to the multitudes and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, this whole multitude, they've all messed their lives up. They don't know what they're doing in life. They didn't read the Old Testament. They didn't, they, you know, they, they aren't really listening to what God's saying. And so their lives are all messed up. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Well, too bad for them. They've got the Bible. They should read it. That wasn't Jesus' response at all. He felt compassion for them. On one occasion, he taught them. On another occasion, he heals them. On another occasion, he feeds them. You know, it's one thing for us as a church body to develop a ministry of compassion where 20 of us on a regular basis go out and do something. 
feed people or, or what. It's another thing for us as a church body, all of us, to be growing in hearts of compassion. How much more powerful would it be if every one of us carries an extra 20 or an extra gift card in our wallet to give away when God tells us to? That's more powerful than us having a weekly food ministry where we feed whatever number of people or give so much food away. How much more powerful is it if all of us take up this and we say, God, we want to be a people of compassion and that means I want to be a person of compassion. I will have compassion on my enemies. I'll have compassion on people who are in generational poverty where they learned this from their parents. I'll have compassion on people who have made bad decisions as well as people who just through the, the, the pains of life ended up in a tough situation. I'm gonna have compassion on them all. I'm gonna open my heart up to you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Wilson, I see the food bags back here. Give them away, okay, all right. You wanna come up and talk about that? This is Wilson. I was just thinking, we have a ton of groceries in the basement. If you look back there, there's not enough for all of you to take one. But on your way out today, if you're just feeling God stir your heart to respond, so much of spiritual growth comes from responding to what you hear. Mm-hmm. Grab right. a bag of groceries and give it to a neighbor you know who is in need. Or stop in an area of town that you think you can just knock on a door and find someone in need. But um, just a chance to respond is all yep. I was thinking. Awesome, Will, thanks. And if you knock on a door you don't know, what we've learned is you say, hey, um, do you know anybody here in the neighborhood, anybody here that's been in the hospital recently or lost their job that needs a bag of groceries? You don't say, hey, I looked at your house and I thought that, you know. Uh, it, but if you do that, then people will say, yeah, right across the street. He, they, he just, he's, he lost his job. And sometimes they'll say, well, I could use groceries. But it's an honor, we would do this in an honoring way, okay? Okay, so... Would you stand with me, please? And repeat, say this with me if you can say it. What I'm gonna say is lead us in saying this. God, I want a heart of compassion. Stir my heart with the compassion of Jesus. We're gonna say that, okay? So, God, I want a heart of compassion. God, I want a heart of compassion. Stir my heart with the compassion of Jesus, okay? Stir my heart with the compassion of Jesus. Father, I, I, as a senior pastor, I just welcome you to have your way in our church. Stir our hearts, just release, release more and more Holy Spirit anointing for compassion. Just give us hearts of compassion. More, Lord, release it, stir it. You've put it in us already. Just stir it up and call it out, Lord. You know, if you're feeling something right now, uh, just say yes, because especially if you're feeling something in your gut, if you're feeling some sense of compassion in your gut, or just, just say yes to God for that, Okay. Come up for prayer for it. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.